All right, y'all. I know it's 8 o'clock in the morning, but you can give a greater amen. amen. Oh, that's better. Let me know you're awake. Good morning. Okay. When they asked me to come and speak at the Monday morning, 8 o'clock meeting, I knew the few but the faithful would be there. Yeah. And I knew I was going to have to say something very important and meaningful and life-changing to make you proud and happy that you spent your time here on a Monday morning, 8 o'clock. So I've got some stuff to share with you. Are you prepared? Are you ready? I want you to talk to me. You can talk to me. This is not your home church. This is not Sabbath morning where you feel like, you know, it's apostasy if you just peeped an amen. You can talk back to me. It's okay. That's allowed. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open to Psalm chapter 78 or 78th Psalm. We're going to begin in verse 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. If you have your Bible app on your smartphone or if you brought your tablet, you can use that instead. I'll be putting the passage up on the screen using the New Living Translation because of the word choice that's been used. So let's see if this works. I'm going to put this on the screen. This is plugged in. No, no, the iPad's not plugged in. I'm preaching off of that, but that's plugged in. Oh, dear. Y'all pray for technology. It's a beautiful thing when it works. It's a frustrating thing when it doesn't. Good thing I've got the passage here. According to the New Living Translation, I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation may know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. This morning, I'm going to share a lot of information. It's going to be like drinking out of a fire hydrant, okay? You're going to hear things that you may not have known. You're going to hear some things that you're probably going to disagree with, and that's okay. We can disagree and yet not be disagreeable, 10% of you are not going to remember 10% of what I've said 10 minutes after I've said it. And if the slides do eventually work on the screen, I invite you to take your smartphones and take photos of those slides for future reference. But I'm going to give the punch line to this message away now, but you're still going to have to listen to know what I mean. Here is what I hope you remember because you came here so early on a Monday morning. You can be the solution to one of the greatest evangelistic opportunities and one of the greatest evangelistic dilemmas the Seventh-day Adventist Church is facing right now. Let's pray together. Father God, we just ask, Lord, for open minds, receptive hearts, and to leave this place realizing that we 
can go back to our churches after camp meeting is over. And we can be catalysts to address a need that is facing our church. And that the majority of the people here at this very meeting are poised to address. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a pain that I've had to see for the past 10 years as a pastor. Parents who purpose to achieve what the psalmist wrote and that we read. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power, about his mighty wonders. So those families wanting to do that very thing followed a recipe. A recipe of family worship, of Sabbath school, pathfinders, youth groups. And yet, as their child became an adult, they also became a lost sheep. And that pain of, what did I not do, provokes a request for me as their pastor to pray for their prodigal child. It is the concern that I am sure many parents or grandparents have. Your angel has been accepted into a college or university. And for the first time in their lives, they will be able to make a choice. Sleep in on Saturday or go find the nearest Adventist church near me. And so you find yourself as a parent, as a grandparent, saying new prayers. You pray that your child will at least try to find an Adventist church near them. And you pray that if they do find an Adventist church, it will be a loving, warming place where your emerging adult will be loved and ministered to in ways that will keep wanting them to come back week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath. It is the conversation that is held in homes or in the hallways of churches during Sabbath school or board meetings. What's going to happen to our church? Everyone realizes that we have an adult Sabbath school teacher for the young adults. The only problem is we don't have any young adults in the Sabbath school classroom. What's going to happen? Everyone in the church recalls the good old days where, where the church was large and booming and everyone had a lot of energy to do those ministries that made the church grow. But now everyone's a little older, has a little less energy and says that they want the next generation to take over and do things in the church until the next generation does. What's going to happen to this church, people ask. We aren't getting any younger. People ask the question, but no one seems to know the answer. Until that one person speaks up over potluck dinner, they think they know the answer, which is usually an erroneous assumption that we must copy what our local megachurch does. And they say, we cannot be like Babylon by adopting a contemporary worship style, listening to watered-down, feel-good sermons preached by hipster pastors wearing skinny jeans. And then the conversation ends without anyone asking whether those assumptions are even true about why they are not reaching young adults. It is the concern 
that parents and grandparents have. It's the concern I hope that you will have at the end of this message. It is how do we achieve what the psalmist wrote. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. How do we do that? How do we get each generation to set its hope anew on God, especially what are called the millennials, the millennial generation, and the generation now that's emerged after them, Generation Z? May I show, again, I want you guys to talk to me. By a show of hands, how many people have a child or grandchild that is a millennial? That means your child is between the ages of 23 and 37. If you have a child or grandchild, ages 23 to 37, most of you, all right? May I see by a show of hands, how many people here have a child or grandchild that's a part of Generation Z, that's ages 7 to 22? Child or grandchild? All right, many hands, good, excellent. These two generations are so large that when combined together, they form half of America's population. America is growing younger. But on Sabbath morning, does your church look like the rest of America? Just by a show of hands, how many people here are over the age of 37? Raise them high. You're over 37. Now look around. Look around. See who's here. All right, now put them down. Now, if you are 37 or younger, and I can't put my hand up, I'm 38. So if you're 37 or younger, now raise your hand if you're here. Now look around. Look around. Yeah, give him a hand. Give him a hand. Now let me ask you, on a typical Sabbath morning, is what we just did reflective of what you see on Sabbath? How many yes? How many know? God bless you. All right. You're part of the exceptional congregations. Good for you. I pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. There are three cities that surround our facility. Almost half of the residents in those three cities are comprised of people who are the ages of 44 or younger. And then I looked around my congregation shortly after I arrived. And I looked around and I said, wow, our congregation is not reflective of our communities. And when your congregation does not reflect your surrounding community, that's not necessarily a good thing. Especially when you pastor a church that just celebrated its 100th birthday. So half the population is young. They are merging into adulthood. You may have looked at the title and wondered, what in the world? Sharing him with emerging adults. What does that mean? That means that while biologically people are maturing faster, and while the law sees an adult at ages 18 or 21, young adults are today are different from previous generations, and that they are reaching the traditional milestones that define being an adult in society. They're reaching those milestones later and later and later in life. They are taking longer to get their education, which means it takes them longer to get that full-time job or career settled, which means it takes them longer to finally get married and longer before they start having 
their first children. Now, when it comes to these two generations, they're, they're merging into adulthood. You say, well, if they're emerging into adulthood and I'm on the other side of 50, what does that make me? It makes you a seasoned adult. You know, you you look over a church today and you look over and you see a lot of salt and pepper. It's seasoned adults. Now, when it comes to these two generations, there is both a great evangelistic opportunity because the size is so large, half the population. But there's also a great evangelistic challenge because nearly half of our nation's adult population qualifies as being post-Christian. Are these working? Not yet. Okay, so post-Christian, that's a new term. Remember, I said you're going to learn some new stuff today. What does post-Christian mean? It basically means this, and I hope we've had the definition on the slide, so here's my best shot at it. You are post-Christian if you live in a society where Christianity formed that society, formed the culture that you lived and grew up in. However, you either have rejected wholeheartedly or don't engage in the very faith that shaped your culture. Christianity, a Judeo-Christian ethic, has shaped our culture. Many of the things that make our culture, our value systems, wonderful and great came straight out of Christianity, came straight from Jesus Christ. And yet the generations that are growing up today are becoming post-Christian. They're not being exposed to church. No one's taking them to vacation Bible school. They're going to college and learning all the reasons why you can't put your trust and faith in the Bible. They look at Christians and saying, we're bigots, we're closed-minded, we're anti-science, and they want nothing to do and are not interested with The Christian faith. Most of us lived with the advantages of being raised in a society that accepted Christian norms and understood the Christian faith, even when a lot of people still didn't go to church. But now we have two generations that, by and large, are completely unfamiliar with Christianity or reject the faith for various reasons. And this explains for some of you why, for so many of us, we watch the news today and we wonder, am I still living in the United States of America? How many of you, when you watch the news, be proud if you think that, raise your hand, you sometimes wonder, am I still living in the United States of America? Because half the population is shifting towards a value system that's different from the ones in which we grew up in. Now, since we are church-going folk and we hang out with church-going folk, we may not realize what this post-Christian thing looks like. So over the past seven years, a total of 60,000 people have been surveyed and researchers suggest that you may be post-Christian if you answer affirmatively, 9 of 15 statements. And I would have had them on the screen, but that's not working. So I'll give you an example of what some of those things are. All right? Have you gone to a church at least one time in the last year? Have you prayed to God at least one time in the last year? Have you given to a church at least one time in the last year. All right, so 
Are you going to church at least at Christmas and Easter? Remember, a lot of this is going out to the evangelical world. That's kind of expected. You at least darken the door of a church two times a year. And if you answer affirmatively and you say, no, I haven't gone to church and I haven't given to the church last year and these kinds of things, if you get 9 of 15, they say you are now post-Christian. Now we look at that and we say that's easy to judge. Man, I can't believe those people are like that. But ask yourself, here are some other questions that would have been on the survey. Have you read the Bible in the last week? In the last week, have you attended Sabbath school? In the last week, did you attend a small group like prayer meeting? And ask yourself, do you feel a responsibility to share my faith with others? If you said no to all of those questions, congratulations, you're halfway to being post-Christian. And this research on our population has concluded the pattern is indisputable. The younger the generation, the more post-Christian it is. So half of our evangelistic opportunity are young adults. The majority, a large portion, are post-Christian. And that poses somewhat of a problem for our churches. Because when we go and become fishers of men as a church, we likely cast a bait called what? Called prophecy seminars, called revelation seminars, called public evangelistic meetings. We largely cast our bait before church-going people. We largely cast our bait before people who are already familiar with scriptures. I mean, think about this for a second. When you go to a Daniel Revelation seminar, you kind of have to already know the story of Adam and Eve a little bit. You don't have to know it all the way, but you kind of have to know who the people are and the kind of flow of the thing and so on and so forth. You've got to have a little bit of biblical knowledge somewhat. We take it for granted today that the generations coming up have that kind of working knowledge already, and many of them don't. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Jason, come on now. You're talking about all this stuff. But come on, we all know, we all know that that's for those godless liberals living on the West Coast. You're talking about people who live in San Francisco. You're talking about Portland. You're talking about Seattle, Washington. We live where? At the Bible Belt. We live in the Carolinas. We live in Billy Graham, God bless country. And so we can fish with this bait. And the fish will keep biting and will keep catching. It's true. The West Coast cities are very post-Christian. If you look at San Francisco, which is the worst, two out of every three people qualify as post-Christian. If you go to Seattle, Washington, Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, one out of every two people qualify as post-Christian. If I had my slides working, it's my fault. It's not anyone else's. I got here late. If, if, we had, if I had that up for you, I would show you that the most post-Christian territory in the Carolinas is Greenville, North Carolina, Washington, North Carolina, New Bern, North Carolina. Almost two out of, I think it's two out of every five people in that area qualify as post-Christian. That was my first district, New Bern and Washington, when I was pastoring. Now I understand why they sent me out there. 
my very first district. Well, son, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. So if you looked at the statistics, if you saw other places, for, for instance, I think it's like 20% of where I pastor, Columbia, South Carolina, post-Christian. If you looked at the statistics, it's not really as scary as the West Coast. So why am I sounding the alarm, hoping that God would put a burden on your heart to go back to your churches, to go back to your church board, to get into the ear of your pastor lovingly and respectfully, to get in the ear of your pastor and say, hey, we need to do something to address this. Why am I saying that? Because after all, we live where? In the Bible Belt. I'm saying this because the Bible Belt is turning into an elastic waistband. I wish I had for you, it's my fault, the Carolina cities on the screen where you could see Even though the percentages are low, just in the last two years, how the survey suggests that the post-Christian population is rising dramatically in the past two years. Here's an example. It may not seem like much. It's the only statistic I can like remember, I, on this slide, I had something like 10 Carolina cities. We're talking about places like Raleigh-Durham. We're talking about places like Charlotte. We're talking about places like Myrtle Beach, so on and so forth. And, and the greatest rise in just a two-year time span was a 10% point bump. In two years, Charlotte, North Carolina went from 20%, one in every five, I believe, if I can still do math, one in every five post-Christian in two years is now up to 25%, one in four people in Charlotte post-Christian. The only good news that I found was from 2013 to 2015, the amount of post-Christians in Columbia, South Carolina went down. And it just so happened I became the pastor there in 2015. I'm not claiming, I'm not claiming causation but I might take correlation. I don't know. So the Bible Belt has become an elastic waistband. Our backyard will become increasingly post-Christian because the older generations who were churched and knew their Bible are naturally going to decrease while the post-Christian millennials and members of Generation Z are continuing to emerge into adulthood. Now think about the implications about how we go fishing for men. We cast the bait of the prophecy seminars. We keep catching fish. But every time we go out and do the meetings, doesn't it seem like the catch gets a little smaller every time? Now some of you are quiet. I don't know if I want to disagree with him. I don't know if I want to say amen to that. And what's the natural conclusion? It's the meeting's fault. The meetings don't work anymore. But meanwhile, under our very boat where we're casting one kind of bait, there are schools of fish underneath that need something else put before them. Otherwise, we're missing missing schools of fish. Here's something I want you to do next time you hold an evangelistic campaign. Count how many non-Adventist attendees are 37 years of age or younger. 
We held a wonderful evangelistic campaign a year ago in Irmo, South Carolina. We, did a, we, we had an awesome turnout. We have an awesome conference evangelist in Steve Vale. I love the way he does meetings. I encourage you to have him come to your church if you haven't already. We held a wonderful campaign, but I can only remember seeing two people under the age of 37 come on a regular basis. Now, let me be clear. I believe in the public proclamation of the three angels' message. Because some of you are starting to wonder. Some of you are starting to wonder if I went to Southern Adventist University or La Sierra right now. You're, you're kind of wondering about that. Okay, I believe in the public proclamation of the three angels' messages. Public evangelism brought my grandmother and my mother into this faith. That is why I'm here. My father, who drifted from his Methodist roots early in adulthood, came back to Jesus and came into the Seventh-day Adventist church through public meetings. I love sharing our message because it accomplishes the unique mission the Lord raised this movement for, to give a greater revelation of the character of God. I, love, I didn't get one amen. Are y'all awake? I love seeing people who already love Jesus, many of them. Not all of them. I know we get some people who have never heard of Christ. I know, we, I know we get those baptisms. But the majority of people already loving Jesus, having their, lies, their eyes lit up as they understand God's word better, finally relieved to have answers to the questions that they've always been asking. I had one saint tell me that her entire Christian experience previously to coming to our series, she said, it's like I've been eating a hamburger, ground beef, All my life, but now I've come to these meetings, it's like I'm eating steak. And I said, that's wonderful, and we'll talk to you later about the health message. I love public evangelism. I love coming to camp meeting and hearing the stories of lives changed through evangelism. Don't you love that? Every... I look young, but I'm here every night. I'm back in that room over there. I'm hearing these stories. I I work behind the scenes. I just have a concern, and I hope you'll catch it. Maybe you already had it because that's why you're here at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. And I hope you'll get it in your pastor's ear lovingly and respectfully and your church board's ear lovingly and respectfully. If all we do is public evangelism as our bread and butter, which is a methodology that appeals largely to a Christian audience who has some familiarity already with Scripture, how will we reach two generations of emerging adults who are disengaged and disinterested in Christianity altogether. And my concern goes deeper than that, and I hope you'll be more concerned after I tell you this story. And this story is not a criticism at all. Back in May, I got to go with some of my pastors from the Carolina Conference, and we got to hang out with some pastors from the Washington Conference. And the Pacific Northwest, again, heavily post-Christian. I got to have dinner with one of their two conference evangelists. And so naturally, I'm learning this stuff. I'm curious. Okay, you're a conference evangelist on the liberal West Coast in a post-Christian environment. I'm thinking, what is he doing for his evangelistic meetings? Is he watering down our unique message simply to bring a large catch in? Because you know we hear those things about those people on the West Coast. And I ask him, so what do you do? What's your approach? He says, I give the traditional three angels message over 20 nights. I preach it straight. I give our message. And people come and we have baptisms. Praise the Lord. Maybe those things you read on the internet aren't true. 
And so I, I was kind of surprised. I'm thinking, oh, okay, you're preaching our message, which relies a lot on a biblical framework, and you're doing that in a post-Christian climate. And, and I'm thinking, so, okay, wait a minute. I, so does that work? I mean, does that, like, draw? Do you get a lot of the post-Christian uh, 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 nuns, the people who don't affiliate with any faith? Do you get a lot of them coming to your meetings? He said, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't. He, he said, he said um, I don't do anything special, targeted, with that demographic in mind. He said, most of the people who come to my meetings come from other churches. Okay. Thank you, Les. Same as here. Someone's awake. Preach your, appreciate you, brother. That's my buddy, Les. We did tag team evangelism together. He's a, he's a good man in the fight. So he's doing the same thing we are. And he's got all these fish under his boat. And he's not throwing out any bait, especially for them. And so I asked him, I said, could you, could you tell me how many young adults do you see in these meetings that you're doing? And he said, not very many. And I said, I said, when you get together with your conference evangelist buddies, are, are any of you guys talking about what to do, how we can take our message and present it before a more young adult post-Christian climate? Is anything being done? Is anything being discussed? And he said, not that I'm aware of. Now, that's not a criticism of him. He's doing his job. He's doing it faithfully. But we've got to be thinking long-term. We've got to be thinking down the road, especially here in the Carolinas. We have the advantage of seeing the future coming. Our Bible Belt is turning into a waistband, but we can do something to prepare as our backyard becomes most post-Christian. It should awaken us with a holy concern because if we're not careful, if we're not preparing to reach emerging adults, then the majority of our efforts will be spent calling Christians out of Babylon while doing little to reach two generations heading straight to hell. Church, we can either steal sheep or go after lost sheep. I'll keep stealing sheep. Especially because I think I see the conference president in the background. I'll keep stealing sheep. Because what other shepherds are feeding their flocks is animal cruelty. But Jesus told us to go after and seek lost sheep. And a large majority of two generations, a large majority of half our population are lost sheep. So just dream with me for a moment if you aren't already asleep. Just dream with me for a moment. What if your church and mine, what if our conference collectively, what if we became like the sons of Issachar, who the Bible says were men who understood the times and knew what to do? What if we understand the times that we live in, that the Bible belt is turning into an elastic waistband? And dream for me with a moment. What if we were like Joseph in Egypt? We saw the future coming and we prepared for it. We see the future unfolding before us. Our backyard will become more post-Christian. But like Joseph, we can prepare for the future. We can get ahead of the curve. We can continue to bless people with our public evangelism traditionally, while at the same time preparing how to learn how to minister to and reach out to 
emerging adults in effective ways. And so that was the vision I tried to cast before my congregation at a business meeting. Could we learn and could we develop a plan to be more effective at reaching emerging adults? You know, that question is like asking someone, would you like to lose weight? It's like asking an Adventist, would you like to come over for lunch and have a haystack? Or asking a Hebrew slave if Moses could set him free from Egypt. I mean, who's going to say no to working towards bringing your kids back to the church? So we began a process of research because you now have to have a missionary mindset. We're talking about America now becoming the mission field. You have to adopt a missionary's mindset as if you were going into a foreign field and dealing with pagans. Post-Christian young adults either misunderstand Christianity, they don't know much about it, little what they think they know about it may be wrong. So like a foreign missionary trying to reach pagans, you have to understand first the very people you want to reach to. My church board have been trying, we've been reading together, trying to understand emerging adults and and reading through very well-written and well-researched books on millennials and Generation Z. And again, my fault, my bad. I had some titles for some books for you. But the one book that I'd recommend, if you leave this place with a passion, wanting to go back to your pastor, wanting to go back to your church board, and saying, what can we do to get ahead of the curve? The best book I would recommend to you is a book called Growing Young. Growing Young. Some of you have smartphones. Go ahead. You have my permission. Look it up on Amazon right now. Go ahead. Click the button. Buy it now before you forget. Growing Young. Green title. Green title on the book, Growing Young. It's based upon research of 250 of the nation's most effective churches at reaching emerging adults, which revealed six core commitments to help congregations reach young adults. Two of the six commitments really surprised me. And that's why I'm going to share them with you. And also because they told me I had to end at 9 a.m. Someone please keep me in check with that. Otherwise, I'll have you here all day. Core commitment number two, empathize with young people. Empathize with young people. I'm so glad that my friend Tim here today was able to tell you last night how he and his family are helping the West Columbia Church learn how to understand the different generational mindsets so we can communicate and empathize and understand one another better. We've got a lot of judgment going on towards young adults. I know that very well, not because I've been on the receiving end, but because I've been the judgmental one inside my heart. How many of you remember Back in the 1950s, there was a black and white television show called Dennis the Menace. How many of you remember that? Great show, great show. I grew up watching that show. I know you're looking at me, you're wondering, how could that possibly be? This is what the Adventist health message does for you. It keeps you young and looking good. Actually, it was reruns on Nickelodeon while I was growing up. Every time Dennis would, get, uh, would bother... Grumpy old neighbor, Mr. Wilson. The old man would let out an exasperated, you can say it with me if you remember it, Great Scott. Remember that? 
every time I would read or hear something new about this vague generation I was detached to called millennials, that Mr. Wilson inside my heart would let out a great Scott. Great Scott! Millennials are lazy and living at home with their parents. Great Scott! Millennials want to make the socialist the president. Great Scott! Millennials are addicted to their smartphones. Can't you put them down and look at me as we eat? I didn't know many, many millennials, but I knew I sure didn't like them. That judgment against them ceased and my heart towards them grew once I began to ask myself the question, would I be any different than them if I were in their shoes? If I graduated from college on the heels of the Great Recession, would I really not live with my parents? If I grew up watching CEOs of banks and industries get fat bailout checks from the government while my parents get a pink slip, would I doubt the benefits of capitalism? If I grew up with a supercomputer in my pocket which enables instant connections with my friends all over the world, would I really not be glued to it? Empathize. Seek to understand. When you and I see something new and confusing and, yes, offensive to us within the culture, we need to ask why before criticizing. Whatever is being embraced by emerging adults may not be biblically right. It may not be wise. But if we take the time to understand at least why is it being embraced, we will understand young adults better. Because missionaries have to understand the very people and how they think that they're trying to reach. The second biggest surprise that was recorded in this book and multiple others that we as a church have been reading comes under core commitment number four, fuel warm community. And that is emerging adults welcome being mentored by more seasoned adults and they enjoy both an an intergenerational connection and an intergenerational worship. Which is great, because that's what Seventh-day Adventists have been doing for a long, long time. I mean, unless you live in some big, big Adventist megachurch, we don't ship all the children off during the worship hour to have children's church while the adults are over here. We're always intergenerationally connected, typically, at least in worship. That should be awesome news for anyone here today, especially if you're on the other side of 50. Because we're talking about reaching young adults and the conventional wisdom that we would all have is that, well, if you're going to reach a young adult or if you're going to be a church that's going to reach young adults, you must have what? Young adults already there reaching out to other young adults. But if you're a church packed with people on the other side of 50, you don't have to lose hope. You've got all the potential in the world. They're welcoming a relationship with you. So get this. You may have physical limitations. You may not be comfortable driving at night like you used to and going to all the church programs. You may not be able to go to an evangelistic meeting and sit down for as long as they preach, like you used to. There may be the thoughts that, you know what, I just can't do that much for the kingdom anymore. But your best 
days of mission work could be ahead of you if all you did was bake some brownies and invite a young couple over to your home and form a genuine friendship with them. To me, the openness of emerging adults to have a relationship with seasoned adults is the most encouraging hope for the Adventist church to reach young adults. And in that excitement, I try to share with my members and my church, hoping that they'll get excited because they have a role now that they can play to win back their youth, to reach out to lost generations. But sometimes I get pushback. They ask questions, well, if that's the case, why are the young adults not coming to us and talking to us and seeking our friendship? And here's my best answer. When I was seven years old, I didn't approach my church leader with a request. Please, sir, could you show me how to give a manly handshake? The elder who grabbed my limp wrist took the time to mentor me and show me how it should be done correctly. When I was 10 years old, I didn't go seeking and soliciting adults in the church saying, please, sir, please, ma'am, could you set up a Pathfinder club for me? I didn't do that. It was the adults who came and said, hey, we've got a Pathfinder program for you. We're going to have a lot of fun. Come and join us. When I was in academy, I didn't ask my Bible teacher, please, sir, the cafeteria food is awful. Would you please invite me over to your house and feed me? Didn't do that. But my academy Bible teacher invited me to his home for dinner. And 20 years later, we are still friends. He always takes my calls. He's still a mentor to me in ministry today. Generally speaking, younger generations do not naturally go out seeking wisdom from the older generations. But younger generations are generally honored when older generations reach out to them and pour into them and mentor them and give them wisdom. If you are on the other side of 50, your greatest mission field, helping the next generation set its hope anew on God, could happen by forming a real mentoring relationship with a young adult within your church, within a young young adult who isn't Christian, but through you could understand, oh, this is what Christianity is about. I thought you guys X, Y, and Z. Now, you've been tremendously patient with me and certainly patient with my lack of technological success. And I know I've given you more information to think about, and you've been drinking from a fire hydrant. But I only have one opportunity to encourage you to be a catalyst that works respectfully and lovingly with your pastor, with your church board, to prepare and position your congregation to reach young adults. But if you act as a catalyst, and I pray that you will, And if your church embraces the vision of reaching the lost sheep of two generations, and I pray that they do, as you go before your church and cast that vision of preparing and positioning your congregation to reach half of the population, you're going to ask the question, church, do we want to see our young people come back to church? And you're going to say, all right. They're going to say amen. They're going to say it more enthusiastically than you did, unfortunately. They're going to say, church, do we want to see our young people come back to church? And you're going to say, are you going to hear? Oh, much better. They're going to say amen, but this is what they're going to mean. Amen. I want to see the young adults come back to church, but my church, the church that I like, the church that I grew up in, the church that I am used to. But if you start asking the question, 
What will we need to do differently to reach younger generations? Expect pushback. Because now you're talking about changing something that many people only like the way it is. Because the church never changes. A world that's changing ever so fast. It's so disturbing. I mean, I, I know that I'm disturbed as 38. When I see the traditional real marriage get redefined by society in my lifetime. And I saw it all happen. I saw all the little things that were happening in the culture that grew up. I can't imagine what some of you who are much more seasoned than I am, I can't imagine what life is like for you. Because you remember how Elvis shaking his pelvis, that was controversial back in the day. And now we're over here and we got people who, who are confused about which bathroom to go to. That must be horrifying for a lot of you. And so you come to church and church never changes and everything is very the same. And that has got to be comforting, not just to praise the Lord, not to just hear the word of God preached, not to just be blessed and edified spiritually, but to come to some place that's constant and consistent and and remind you of a far better time. And now someone's talking about changing that, messing with that, tweaking that. Ooh, and that touches you in a very sensitive place. When we're talking about changing things in the church, it almost feels like we're taking away someone's spiritual security blanket. And so you will get pushback from the people who originally gave you an amen. They may question the emphasis upon being intentional to reach young adults. Why do they need such emphasis? I mean, these are grown people. These are adults. These aren't snowflakes. They should just fall in line and get with the program. And when that happens, peel back the layers. Try to explain to them what emerging adult is. Try to remind them that back in the day, a 16-year-old used to plow the back 40. And then we went to the Industrial Revolution. And kids worked in factories at 16 or younger. And then we said as a society, that's not good. We shouldn't do that. So they're not working on the farms. They're not working in the factories. And at 16, what are they doing? Playing video games. It's called adolescence. It wasn't something that used to always be. And now all these things are culture changing and tell them, look, basically adolescence is now getting much longer. And so the the people that you think should be an adult at 18 and 21 are not acting completely like an adult. And just as we ministered to youth and young adults and youth programs when we saw adolescents, we now have to adapt and begin to understand what we're dealing with and minister to young adults. Maybe if you explain that to someone, you'll win a brother over. But after listening and learning, if they still complain, it's likely because they are threatened about the unknown. They are worried about what they're going to have to give up. And that's an opportunity to let them know that we're all going to have to give up something. By necessity. Because we're living in a period unique to human history since the Old Testament. Tim, I'm glad you said it last night. We have five generations worshiping underneath the same room at the same time. That is almost completely new to human history since the days of Noah. Do you know what that means? It means it's going to be impossible for a church to give every generation precisely what it wants all the time. 
which means no one is ever going to be completely happy with every church service that they go to. And by the way, you don't go to church in order to become happy. You, church is not a place you go to find happiness. You find that at the Magic Kingdom. You come to church to learn how to mature spiritually and to die to self. In January, I had lunch with a wonderful 90-year-old man who asked me, what do you think? He was a kind man, but you could tell he had something he wanted. He knew I was a pastor, and so he had pastoral feedback he wanted to give me. So we're eating over lunch. What do you think about that music during the worship service? I thought it was an interesting question. I was more interested in what he thought because he did not know three of my members were on that stage leading the praise and worship that morning. So I told him what I thought. I thought that they did a phenomenal job, not just because they're from my church. I'm telling you all for real. They did, I thought they did a phenomenal job ushering us into a reverent and spiritual atmosphere. Now, he didn't know that I was interested in what he knew. And so he told me, not knowing that my people were on the stage, he told me what he thought. He said, I think it's an abomination. Now think about that for a moment. His abomination was what? My blessing. With five generations worshiping together, church is going to have to be a lot like a sampler box of Whitman chocolates. I mean, how many of you actually read the directions on the box of Whitman chocolates? You, you read the five. I don't. I just dive into that thing. I put one of them. Oh! What were they thinking? And then I pop another one. Oh, oh. Church is going to have to be a little bit like that in the future with five generations under the same roof. There are going to be pieces of the church you don't like and others you do. Some elements will bless you. Some other elements won't. When it comes to that which does not bless you, the best option then is to die to self, to serve one another, to give and take, and to put our energies into that which we all agree in, or at least should, to go and seek and save the lost. And if seeking to save two lost generations means that I don't have to deal with things that I don't like in church or that may offend me, here is where I hope. I'm not preaching at you, but here is where I personally hope that I will make that choice of willing to be upset but less upset should someone's abomination, including mine, prohibit a blessing for someone else. And this is the part of the program where I wish the PowerPoint was working. Because if I did, could have it work, there would be this picture up on the screen with this adorable 19-month-year-old boy named Caleb. And your heart would just melt. And if you're mad at me for everything I've said, you'd forget your anger because that child's face would make your heart melt. He's the first child that I've gotten to watch develop in a church since birth. Because this is the first time in my career I'm preaching at the same church almost Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And so less than 48 hours after he was born, I was at his hospital to, you know, pay his parents a visit. And, and, and they said, do you want to hold this child? And I'm thinking inside my head, what in the world are you thinking? No, mother, keep that child in your arms where it's safe. So every week I get to see this, ch- this child develop more and more. Now he's mobile. Now he's more vocal. 
And I want you to think about that child. I want to think about your child. I want you to think about your grandchild. Most of us here in this room were born in a Christian culture where the world around us supported a Judeo-Christian value system. Caleb is growing up in the Carolinas that will grow increasingly post-Christian. His parents will not enjoy the backup from the culture that my parents or your parents enjoyed. Most of us here in this room were born at a time when no one would fathom marriage could be anything but a bond between a man and a woman. Not only that, but we grew up in a time where we knew where to use the bathroom. Caleb is growing up in a world of gender fluidity, and you are considered now to be a hater if you believe that there's just one thing called real marriage. Most of us here in this room were born at a time where bombings were acts of terrorism that only happened overseas. And if they reached the homeland, we were shocked. How in the world could this happen? Caleb is growing up in a world where homegrown and foreign terrorism is now the new norm. He will not be surprised when it happens like you and I are. Most of us here in this room remember the first time we saw pornographic material. And for a large majority of it, for us, it was something in a magazine, a pictorial. Caleb is growing up in a world where children are easily exposed to vile and addicting online content as early as the age of eight. A world in which young adults today think it's more immoral not to recycle than it is to look at porn. And as a result, more men in their 20s, not their 50s, are dealing with sexual dysfunction. When Caleb turns 18, I will be 56 years old. And after 56 years of walking with the Lord, of studying his word, of praying my faith should be strong enough, I, of praying, I believe my faith should be able to withstand being offended for a few minutes during the worship service if Caleb can be blessed. If it means that Caleb can connect to God and find a blessing so his generation can set his hope anew upon God. Pastor, are you saying that Caleb should just be able to bring any instrument into the church? That he should be able to bring that worldly instrument that originated from Africa into the church? That that you would be willing to be offended by that African instrument that's used to play in the world. You bring it to the church. You're willing to be offended by that or not to be offended by that. So Caleb will be blessed. And I would just say to you, when you're referring to an instrument that originated from Africa and is playing in the world, are you referring to the organ? If the Protestant reformers like John Calvin and John Wesley saw that we were using musical instruments in worship, they would say you are a part of creeping compromise. And yet what they were offended by, you somehow have gotten blessed by. God apparently worked it out. You mean you'll just let Caleb come to church dressed like he wants to in the name of being blessed? That sounds like creeping compromise to me. Church, Caleb could come to church. He could come to to church dressed any way as far as I'm concerned, just as long as he's not wearing a mustache or a goatee. Because in 1866, the General Conference officially took a position against its members having those forms of facial hair. And if those church leaders saw some of the men here today and what you have under your nose, you're a part of creeping compromise. And yet what they were offended by, you've been blessed by. Some of you, you men know that you've been blessed by it because your wife tells you she likes looking at Tom Selleck. Apparently, God worked it out. God worked it out 
like he always does. Because Jesus said that the church is his church. He said the church is his bride. He told us not to protect my church. He told us to go make disciples. And so some of us, if we're going to be open to doing what we're talking about and reaching these lost sheep, we have to remember to give the church back to Jesus and do what he told us to do, to go seek after lost sheep. Father God, may something that was said here done, something that was said or done here today, not just stay in this room, not just be recorded and maybe posted online somewhere, but may someone here take what was done and put work boots on it and take it back to their church and their congregation and help the Carolinas get ahead of the curve and, and, and not miss, but reach half of the population that needs you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.